Guys, it's, uh, it's great to see you, great to be together. If you are, um, in fact, new, I want to welcome you again. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you part of the, the Doxa family uh, today. But I want to invite you to grab your Bible and find your way to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, guys, while you get there, let me, let me just uh, kind of tell you where we're at and, and where we're going in the, the months to come. But next week, um, we're going to begin a 17-week study through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, all right? And so we're excited. Guys, here's what we believe. We believe that this is a book that God wrote, and every word of, is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for us. And, and so the letter to Galatians, what this means is that this was writ- written to a very specific people group at a very specific time in human history, but being the words of God, that means that every word in this book are both timeless and timely, and so we, we believe that as we study through this, that we're not just going to learn history, but God's going to break into our reality today and to help us and to change us and to convict us and to grow us into the men and women that he has created us to be. And so here's my, my encouragement for you. Guys, this week, just read the book of Galatians, all right? And, and as you do that, don't get caught up on like wordings that you're like, or, or verses that you're like, man, what does that mean? What does that mean? Just, just read it cover to cover, and just get the big picture of what's going on. We're going to be walking through this verse by verse, so we'll get to a lot of those questions that maybe would come up as, you, as you're reading it, but six chapters, 149 verses. If you just decided tomorrow just to start reading a chapter a day, by next Sunday, you'll be ready to go with a big picture understanding of Galatians, and we'll start that study together. And if you don't have a Bible, and you're like, okay, I'll jump into that, but I don't have a Bible, We'd love to give you the gift of a Bible. So you can stop at the end of the coffee bar on your way out to at Info Corner, grab a Bible for yourself, a couple for your family. And honestly, that would be a, a great thing that we would love to, to give you. But that's what's coming up. But here's what we have today, okay? So tomorrow, uh, most of you probably know, but is MLK Day. And it's a, a day in our country dedicated to the, the memory and the life and, and cause of, of one of the greatest American leaders that we have towards justice and equality for, for all Americans, Dr. Martin Luther King. That MLK Day is a day in our country where, you know, everybody just kind of is, is forced to get to a place of where we're remembering or we're kind of hearing about and talking about issues concerning unity and, and diversity and racial reconciliation and all of these different things. And so what we're going to do today, guys, is we're just going to talk about these things. Because I want you to understand this. These things are issues that are actually close to God's heart. And believe it or not, these are not just issues that are just cultural holidays, but these are issues found throughout the pages of the Bible. And so we just need to talk about them. Uh, But I want to start, before we even open up the Bible, I want to start with just saying this, okay? I know for some of you, as as I talk about, hey, we're going to be talking about race. We're going to be talking about equality and and reconciliation. I know that some of you hear that and you're just kind of asking the question, okay, Like, is this just similar to all the conversations and the policies that are at my workplace over the last couple years? Like, is that what we're going to do? Or maybe maybe you would hear that we're talking about this and some of you would ask, like, man, why? Why would we even talk about this? Aren't we just gospel people? Like, aren't we just gospel people? Like, we just preach the gospel, and if we did that, then all the disunity and all the division around people groups, that'll all just work it out. But we're just gospel people. Shouldn't we just preach the gospel? And it all figure itself out, right? Or maybe you're asking, and I know there's probably some of you in here that you're like, oh man, is this just culture creeping in the doxa? Like, you're, maybe you're sitting here and you'll be like, I knew there would come a day. Rob is now woke, and doxa 
is totally woke, and that's why they're talking about this. I need you to understand something. When we talk about reconciliation, racial reconciliation, equality, guys, this is not about wokeness and culture. This is about kingdom and gospel. All right, and I'm going to prove that to you today because we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, probably one of the, the most beautiful, powerful gospel chapters of the entire Bible. But as we get into this, let me say two things. First, we are definitely gospel people first, okay? Like our primary calling is to preach the gospel and to make disciples. There is no question about that. If you've been around Doxa for any amount of time, you know this is who we are as a church family. And then secondarily, I'll, I'll say this, okay? The, the great theologian, um, Karl Barth, um, he once said that every Christian should have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And this is what he was getting at, Okay? That the gospel, please hear me on this, the gospel isn't just something that we tack on to every conversation that we have, but it's the lens that we see every conversation through. You understand this? The gospel is the lens that we see all of reality, all of life, all of culture, all of everything through. And so for us, guys, as it relates to our culture and all the things happening in our world, we need to have scripture, the words of God to us, as an interpreter. Because to be sure, Guys, there are things in our culture that we just need to reject, right? There, there's things in our culture that, that are inconsistent with God's words to us in the Bible, and we just need to humbly reject those cultural trends and those cultural movements regardless of like what influencers are saying. We just need to humbly reject that, and we need to humbly say, and I keep saying humbly because we do not need to be throwing stones and bricks and getting angry, but we just need to humbly say, I can't do that. This is what God says, this is what you says, I'm following him. And I can't go along with what you're saying because I wanna honor and follow God. So we, we need to reject some things in our culture, but guys, it's not just about us rejecting everything in this world. Because there are also things in our culture that we can actually accept and we can redeem. And as we consider MLK Day, what we're gonna find is that God has things to say about the message of Dr. King. All right? And Dr. King's message and life work is actually very close to the heart of God. And so I'm not going to stand up here today and talk much about the man, Dr. King. Because right? we could have all types of conversations and we can talk about, well, what did he actually believe theologically? And we could talk about all those things. I'm not going to get into that today. Instead, what we're going to consider is we're going to consider the message of Dr. King of what we celebrate on MLK Day. In, the, in his message, if you've listened to I Have a Dream speech, if you, if you listen to this message, it can be kind of summarized in this. It's equality for all people. Equality for all people. And so I want to help you to understand this message. Something that our culture is going to be talking a lot about tomorrow and people are going to be posting on your social media feeds and all this stuff. I want to talk about this and help you understand this biblically through the word of God, okay? So Ephesians chapter two, verse one, is where we are going to be, all right? Ephesians chapter two. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul is writing to this church that he started, all right? It's a, it's a young church, a growing church. They're trying to figure out, like, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What is this gospel all about? And for the first chapter and a half, all right, Paul just kind of talks about the gospel. Like if you read Ephesians chapter one, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, it's just like an explosion of joy. As Paul thinks about Jesus, he writes in the Greek one run-on sentence that lasts like 
I don't know, 300 words. It's just like him just saying, this is what Jesus has done. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has adopted us. He has cleansed us. He has forgiven us. He has sealed us. And he is just erupting in joy as he thinks about Jesus. And then he gets to chapter 2. And here is what Paul has to say. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you, this is, this is all of us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Doc said, this is God's word. And this is the goodness and the greatness of the gospel. And this gospel is all about Jesus. Okay, so if you look at the first chapter and a half of Ephesians, the first 33 verses, as Paul writes this, he talks about Jesus and points to Jesus 20 different times. So in 33 verses, 20 different times, Paul is mentioning Jesus. And so for Paul, as he's thinking about the gospel, as he's thinking about the reality of Jesus, for him, all of human history, all of life, all of eternity is ultimately all about Jesus. And as we're considering Jesus, his gospel, guys, is what our church family is all about. It's always about Jesus. It always comes back to the gospel. Now, here's what I'll tell you about the gospel, and here's what you need to know about the gospel. What you'll find as you study the New Testament is that the gospel has both vertical and horizontal implications. And the vertical is this, all right, that the gospel is first and foremost about our relationship with God. That the gospel is about a gift that God gave us when we were condemned in our sin, not following him at all. All right, that Jesus came down to earth ultimately on a rescue mission to do for us the thing that we could not do for ourselves. That sin is a very real part of every single one of our lives, and sin is just anything that God is not. And we all sin. We don't do the things that we should do, and we, don't, we do the things that we shouldn't do. The Bible just calls this sin, and it separates. It separates us from God. And no matter what we try to bring ourselves back to God, you can never do it. And so we can try philanthropy, we can try morality, we can try spirituality. It doesn't do anything with our relationship with God. But Jesus... He comes and he lives for us, he dies for us, he raises for us, that when we come to him in faith, he does what he says that he came to do, to forgive us of our sin, to take our sin, to bring us back to God. This is the gospel. And guys, this is the vertical dimension of the gospel. It's God reconciling us to himself through Jesus. And this vertical dimension of the gospel, this is what most Christians think about when we think about the gospel. So you're talking to your neighbor, they're like, what did you do this morning? Oh, I went to church, we go to Doxa. Oh, what's that church all about? Well, it's all about Jesus, it's about his gospel. What's the gospel? Well, this is how I'm made right with God. Emphatically true. But it doesn't stop there. Because I need you to understand this. Guys, that vertical dimension 
has horizontal implications. And this is something that many Christians don't think that much about. And so, guys, when we think about the message of MLK Day biblically, not culturally, but biblically, what we find is a lot of truth. A lot of truth. That vertical reconciliation with God leads to horizontal transformation of relationships. And this is what Paul is going to talk to us about in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, that the first chapter and a half of Ephesians, Paul is talking all about the vertical. He's talking about how good Jesus is, and we're adopted, we're saved, we're, we're redeemed, we're, we're forgiven. But as we get into chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, Paul is going to talk about the horizontal. And this is going to help us to understand the weight and the beauty of the message of MLK Day And as we get into this, okay, you're going to hear Paul, and he's going to use the language, and he's going to speak of a dividing wall of hostility, all right? And what we're going to find out is this dividing wall of hostility, it's a a spiritual wall of hostility, but it was an actual physical wall of hostility as well. And Paul is going to speak specifically about the hostility that existed between two groups of people, all right, the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he's going to talk about how the reconciliation that the gospel of Jesus brings to us with God. Paul's going to say, and this is the big idea, okay? If you're a note taker, this is where we're going. That Paul is going to say that what's been accomplished vertically must be applied horizontally. All right, that the reconciliation that has occurred in our lives with God because of Jesus must be applied horizontally towards the people around us in the everyday stuff of our life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through verses 11 through 22, and then we're just going to end with two questions by way of application. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, therefore. All right, now, this is always a transition word. All right, Paul is saying that in light of the, the beautiful, glorious, crazy news of the gospel, in light of all of this that the first chapter and a half of Ephesians has been about, he says, therefore, remember, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So here's what's going on. All right, Paul's addressing a conflict, a hostility, a hatred that existed between two groups of people, the Jews called the circumcision, and the Gentiles called the uncircumcision, all right? So in this day, there were some Jewish people that were saying, hey, we are the circumcised, all right? I'm not sure why they chose that name. They had way better names that they could have chose from, but they're like, that's us. We're the circumcised. They are the uncircumcised, right? And this was kind of in that time, the thing that demarcated what team you you were on in this day, and it was a conflict, a massive conflict. It was racial, it was ethnic, it was religious, and it was just brutal, filled with hatred. And if we trace this conflict all the way back, it takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, the book of origins with a man named Abraham. But here's the situation. All right, if you know your Bible, you've, you've kind of heard the story of Abraham, but Abraham was just a normal guy. He's just wandering around. He wasn't worshiping God. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't loving God or anything like that. But God shows up to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, one of the biggest chapters in the entire Bible. And God shows up and says, Abraham, I know you're not loving me, but I love you. I know you're not seeking after me, but I'm seeking after you. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm choosing you. I'm God. You're not. I want to be your God. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all people. 
And God used Abraham to bring about the Jewish people. Now, I don't know if you guys do this, but when I, especially when I first started reading the Bible, I would read about men like Abraham and different men and women in the Bible. I'm like, man, they're amazing. Maybe one day I'll be good enough to, I'll be, I'll be just like Abraham. Maybe you're thinking like, oh, I want to be, Abraham's known as a pillar of faith, and he's got it all together. Here's the thing, guys. Nearly everybody in the Bible, minus Jesus, has a lot of issues. And that's especially true with Abraham, okay? Because if you know the story, Abraham eventually took two wives, Okay, so for you guys that you're wondering, like, that's one too many. Okay, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. That's a whole, come to Docs and Men, we'll talk about it, okay? But here's what happened. The result was, is that he had two sons, one with each woman, which brought about this massive conflict. Because the question was, which son? Like, which son is going to be considered the firstborn? Which son is going to receive all the inheritance and all the blessings that were promised to Abraham by God? And so what you had is you had two women, two sons, and this, this massive conflict. And the result was is that Abraham circumcised himself and his household, and he began circumcising his descendants as an outward sign of an inward covenant with God that would ultimately be fulfilled in the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. All right, so what happens here is that you had this side of the family who are the circumcised, and then you had kind of this side of the family, right? The, the side of the family that you don't really want to invite to holidays and don't really send cards to, the, the, the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so I want to talk about this because this is a massive conflict. I want to talk about both of these groups and give you an understanding of, of what's actually happening here, but we'll start with the Gentiles, okay? If you look back to verse 12, Paul talks about who these, these people are. He says in this section, in verse 12, they're separated, they're excluded, they're strangers having no hope and without God. And you could read that and you'd be like, wow, that's, that's a bummer for the Gentiles. I need you to understand, that's us, okay? Any of you who are not Jewish, this is us. This is our heritage, that pre-Jesus, we were just godless pagans. This is all of our stories. That before coming to Jesus for salvation, the Gentiles, they had their own way of life. They had their own ideology about how they viewed the world. They had their own religion. They had their own false gods. They had their own traditions, and they were all demonic. It was all evil, and it was all anti-God. And this is every single one of our stories before Jesus. Every single one of us. And if you know your Bible, the Gentiles were viewed by the Jews at this time as just kind of second-class horrible, almost like subhuman people. And so for the Jews at this time, the Gentiles were the bad guys. And so they would think about the Gentiles, if you, again, if you know the scriptures, they would think like the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Egyptians. They'd be thinking about men like King Nebuchadnezzar. They would be thinking about Pharaoh. They would be thinking about King Herod. They were like these terrible people groups, these terrible people. These were the Gentiles. And so the Jews at the time, they just had disgust towards the Gentiles. In fact, many Jews at this time, a faithful Jew, would wake up every single morning and they would recite a prayer to God in which they, they would say, they would thank God for not allowing them to be born a Gentile. And even more, at this time, Jews were, were not permitted to marry Gentiles. And so if you were a Jewish person and you fell in love with a Gentile and you had a, a, a wedding, the same day of your wedding, your funeral would take place because you were essentially dead to your family. 
And then even more, on top of that, Jews. It was forbidden for a Jew to help a Gentile woman who was struggling to give birth because it would make them ceremonially unclean, but it would also aid in bringing another Gentile into the world, which would be disgusting. So this is the conflict. Okay, this is how bad it was. This is how the Gentiles were regarded by the Jews. Now, what about the Jews? Here's what you need to know about the Jews at this time. All right, the Jews of this time were very much prone to pride. There's a lot of pride. Because for them, what they would say and they would think, they would be like, man, God chose us. God chose us because he chose our father Abraham. And they would think like, man, all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, all the scriptures, these are ultimately all about our family. And God says that he loves us and God says that we're the apple of his eye, that he's our father, that we have eternal life in him. We are the chosen one. We're the chosen ones. In this room, all of us, we're the chosen ones. We're the good guys. Everybody out there, they're bad. And so the Jews were like, we're good. We're the good people. Everyone else out there is bad. Now, here's how this came to be, guys. The Jews forgot something really important. They forgot the rest of their family background. Okay? Because if you read the Bible... There's no room and there's no reason that God's people should have any amount of pride. Because Abraham wasn't the best of men, okay? I mean, he was a guy who committed adultery, polygamy. He gave his wife away twice to different men. And so it's not like Abraham has this amazing resume of sinlessness, all right, there's some serious issues, some serious problems, some serious sin going on with this family, specifically with Abraham, but even other people part of, around Abraham. And so you think about guys like Lot in the Bible, and you might be like, well, what did Lot do? What's wrong with Lot? A lot is wrong with Lot, okay? If you know the story, like just a weird dude locks himself in a cave with his two daughters. He impregnates them. He creates a new people group called the Moabites. So just a lot of weird stuff going on in this family of the Jews, a lot of brokenness. And then even more, they shouldn't have been prideful because the storyline of history is that God's people would oftentimes get into sin. God would send prophets to warn them and say, hey, you're in sin, and these people wouldn't listen to God. And so then at times, God would send these people, his people, into exile as a way of punishment. And so it's not as simple as saying the Gentiles are sinners and the Jews, God's people, they're amazing. But let me ask you this. How many of you, you have a little pride? Like how many of you, you have a little pride because of who you are and where you come from? Like maybe you, you have some pride because you're, you're from a religious family, a moral family, a generous family, a significant family, a, a really affluent family. Maybe you, you think and you have this in your head like my parents were missionaries. Like my grandpa but he was a pastor and he started a bunch of churches. My family, where I come from, like we are just like really good people. We're really generous. We're known. Like we're very traditional. We hold to our convictions, really involved in the church and committed to that. And you have a little pride because of all that that causes you to look down on other people who are different. Is that you? Some pride in you that kind of, you, you look, you elevate yourself so you can look down on other people that are just different. Any pride in you that makes you look down on others? 
And as you're thinking about that, I just want, I want to share this with you guys. The truth is, is if we trace our family line back far enough, we will find a lot of brokenness. Every single one of our families, a lot of godlessness, a lot of sin in every single one of our families. And some of you, you don't have to like get online and go to 23andMe or whatever like that. You just like pick up the photo album. There's Uncle Joe, right? And you're like, no, I get it. He's bad dude, right? And you're like, I see it. But guys, when we see the brokenness in our lives, in our families, here's what this does. It humbles us. Because when we see all that brokenness in our family line and in our lives, we realize that there is no room for pride for any of God's people. None. The Jews of this time didn't get it. They didn't understand this. And they just kind of thought, hey, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. They need to join us if they want to be with God. And Paul says it's hostility. That's, there's this great conflict and this great animosity that's existing between these two people. And what happens is that Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus comes and he lives and he dies and he resurrects and he sends the Holy Spirit. He establishes the church and everything changed. Because for thousands of years, if you wanted to know God, you became a Jew. That you learned Hebrew, you picked up Jewish customs, but then Jesus comes on and he launches this, this whole thing of like whoever wants to come can come through me. And all of a sudden, a bunch of Jews and a bunch, bunch of Gentiles, they're now coming to know Jesus these Jews are becoming Christians, these Gentiles are becoming Christians, and what happens is they found themselves in the church together. And we might hear that and we're like, man, that's great, diversity. That's the buzzword in our culture, right? We love diversity. Hear me on this. It is beautiful. But what happened is that these Jews and Gentiles showed up in the church together and they hated each other. They hated each other. And this hatred this division, this wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles, please hear me on this, guys. It was just as big, if not bigger, than any divide that we face today in America between blacks and whites or brown and white or Asian and African American or men or women or right or left. You need to understand this. And so all of a sudden, you have two groups of people who are radically different they don't like each other. They're living together in the church. And both groups kind of idolized their own tribe. They, they elevated themselves and they idolized themselves. And what happened is racism just emerged within these people. And this is some of what Paul is, is trying to help with. Because here's the truth. Because we've talked about this before, I think in the Jonah series. But it was the great uh, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who once said that if you idolize, you ultimately demonize. And here's what this means. If you idolize your race, you will demonize other races. If you idolize your nation, you're going to demonize other nations. And guys, this happens everywhere today. It's pervasive in our world. It happens racially with black and white. It happens politically with left and right. I mean, this, we're entering into 2024, the, the election, right? And so please pray that Jesus comes back so we don't have to live through it, okay? Amen? But it happens everywhere. It happens with rich and poor, with men and women, with old and young, with generational conflicts. It's pervasive. This is very much the issue with the Jews and the Gentiles. They hated each other. And this is why, at the time, around the temple of God in Israel, where people would go and worship God, there was a literal wall 
All right, it was, a, it was about 10 feet tall. It was made of, of thick stone, and it would have signs on it. And the sign read, and I quote, any Gentile entering beyond this wall will have only themselves to blame for their ensuing death. There was such a hatred between these people that they were like, if you come to try and be with us as we worship God, we will kill you. And so there was a literal and racial and preferential and spiritual dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now today, right, we we don't put up literal walls like this anymore, right? But here's what I'll tell you. In every church, we still have dividing walls. We absolutely still have dividing walls. Walls that in our minds separates the right kind of people from the wrong kind of people. Walls that separate the good people from the bad people, the safe people from the unsafe people. And these can be ethnic walls, these can be political party walls, these can be income bracket walls, this can be how morally clean is your past walls. Anything that puts us into categories and puts people into categories to make you feel superior over them. You got any walls right now? I think this is a question that in this section God is speaking and it would demand us to ask that. You got any walls right now? And here is what Paul says. He recognizes this tendency for us all to construct walls in our lives because of sin. And in the midst of this hostility that existed then and even now between God's people, Paul says in verse 13, take a look. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself. And I want you to underline this in your Bible. One new man in the place of two. One new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in the midst of this hostility, this hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul says something that has never been said before. And he uses the language, if you look back to verse 15, one new man in the place of two. And so Paul comes along in the midst of this argument and says, look, it's not about being Jewish, it's not about being a Gentile, it's about being in Christ. And this is Paul. If you look back at his letters, the 13 letters of the New Testament, this is one of Paul's favorite things to talk about, about being in Christ. He said it's not about being Jewish. It's not about being a Gentile. It's about being in Christ. Because the Jews of this time, they're thinking, man, the Gentiles, they just need to be like us. And the Gentiles are thinking, no, 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 the Jews are terrible. They need to actually be like us. But the story of the Bible is that people shouldn't be like you and you shouldn't be like them, but everybody should be like Jesus, right? Right? This is the story of the Bible. And when you look at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it shows at the center of all of human history in all of eternity is Jesus. 
And around the throne of Jesus are all nations, all types of people, all races of people, all languages of people, and they are gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him, where Jesus is in fact their unity in the midst of their diversity. And this is what Paul is pointing to. That with Jesus at the center, this is our unity. And if we become, if every single one of us becomes more and more like Jesus, we maintain our cultural differences and distinctions, but our preferences, they don't become our prejudices. And this, guys, is what the Christians in the early church needed to learn. They didn't get it. And I would say that this is something that many people in this room need to learn. We need to learn this. And so Paul says it's about being in Christ, where Jesus makes us a new race of people, so to speak. And, and I was thinking about, this could be a little bit of a confusing concept to understand, so I want to explain it like this. If, think about a wedding, okay? In a wedding, there's a man and a woman, a bride and a groom, and they come together, right? That the man doesn't join her family and the woman doesn't join his family, but together the two become what? One, Right? And they make an entirely new family. In this new family, they have some aspects and elements of of their old family, but they literally come together and they make a new family. Guys, it's kind of like that with Jesus. Jews and Gentiles are reconciled together through faith in Jesus, and they become one. They become the church, and they start a new family called Christianity. It's kind of like that. You get it? You following me? This is what Paul is is talking about. And this doesn't erase our previous ethnicities or make it unimportant. It's not at all like that. Because, guys, God made the various cultures and races and ethnicities as a a display of his glory. That in Revelation chapter 22, it says that we will bring the best of our individual cultures into heaven as a display of the glory of God. And so this, this new race doesn't erase our ethnicity. It just gives us a common, united identity that is more important than our ethnicities. And so for the Jewish people, they're hearing this and they're trying to understand and figure out, okay, my my primary identity is not a Jew. My primary identity is being in Christ. And the Gentiles are trying to understand this and they're saying, okay, my primary identity is not to be a Gentile, but my primary identity is that I'm in Christ. It's an identity problem. And they're thinking, like, okay, so if that's true, if we're like one in Jesus, then we probably shouldn't be fighting one another because if we're actually one and we're trying to fight each other and hurt each other, we're actually hurting ourselves. And so they're trying to figure out, like, what do we do with this now? How do we live as radically different people in this family that Jesus brought together? And Paul uses the language that they're brought near. Because, guys, see this. If, if Jesus is at the center and the Gentiles come to Jesus... And then the Jews come to Jesus. They're brought what? Near. They're brought near to each other by their relationship with Jesus. And he says, if you look back, that they have access in one spirit to the Father. And guys, I love this. What this means is that there is no front of the bus or back of the bus in Christianity. Do you understand that? There's no first class or second class Christian. There is no JV squad and varsity squad. Okay? That we're all one. That God is a father who loves all of his kids. 
He absolutely is black, white, rich, poor, young, old, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, Democrat, Republican. He loves all of his kids equally. And he places the Holy Spirit in each and every single one of us. And we have equal access to our dad. This is the gospel. There is no wall of hostility. Paul says that Christ tore down all those dividing walls by showing us, and as he tore down the walls, he shows us that there's actually only one category of people. Sinners. All right, because guys, in God's eyes, it's not that there are good people and bad people. It's not that the good people believe this and the bad people believe this, the good people are part of this group, the bad people are part of this group. God doesn't look down from heaven and see good people and bad people. He looks down and he sees bad people in the Lord Jesus. That's all of us. There's, there's nothing good really part of us except for the common grace of God and the saving work of Jesus. We're made in his image, but we're all broken. And so I tell you that to say this, guys. Culture and cultural influencers are wrong. And you've been lied to. All right, that we're not primarily members of a social class. We're not primarily members of a political party or an ethnic group, but we're primarily people made in the image of God. And every single one of us, regardless of race and ethnicity or background or class, we have a common problem. And it's sin. And we're all on the outside. Every one of us is on the outside before Jesus, whether Jew, Gentile, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, male, female. We're all on the outside before Jesus. And so reality is that there's only really two types of people. That there are those who are in sin and those who are in Christ. This is it. We're either in sin or in Christ. This is the truth of how you sit in your seat right now. And guys, Christian, let me just talk to you. When you understand the gospel, when you become a Christian, you can never see people the same way again. You can never see people the same way again. Because Jesus' blood, Paul says in verse 14, cleanses us all alike. And that tore down this wall that existed between us and God because of sin, but also between us and each other. That Jesus made us a new race, a new family, all through his blood. And Paul says in verses 21 and 22 that Jesus has joined us together as a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Christian, please hear me on this. This is who we are. With all of our differences, we are one in Jesus. Jesus has made us family with all of our distinctions, with all of our differences. And so Paul's big point is this. The reconciliation that the gospel has brought us vertically must be applied in our lives horizontally. So let me end with this. All right, two questions by way of application. First question, how important is this? Okay, like maybe you hear this and you're like, I don't know, this just sounds just like another social argument. I get people argue, like how important is this? Like unity, like reconciliation, like how important is this? Why does it even matter? I want you to listen to this. Because there's a place in the Gospel of John where we see Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And if you remember, Jesus is actually praying on this night. And he prayed to his disciples for his, 
or to his father for his disciples, but he also prayed for, for us as his church. And he chose to pray something that was very, very close to his heart. John chapter 17, listen. Jesus is praying. He says, I did not ask for these only. All right, so he's like, I'm not just praying for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So he's praying for us, his future church, that what? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So this is the very last thing your Savior prayed for you. All right, before Jesus was arrested, before he was beaten, tortured, ultimately crucified, this is what he prayed. And it was a prayer for unity in his church. That we as God's church, although we will differ, and we will differ. And although we will differ in gender, in age, in personalities, though we will differ in occupation, in political ideas, in income brackets, though we will differ in cultures, in languages, in skin color, in ethnicity, Jesus, he knew all of this, and he loved all of this, because, and because he loves all people and came with an invitation with all types of people, what did he do? He prayed for our unity. He knew that sin is real, it's pervasive, it's problematic, it separates. And it's not just separating people from God, but it's separating people from other people. And so he prayed that that would not happen in his church. That there would be unity. And he prayed for it three times in four verses. Jesus is praying something that was closest to his heart. And he said, Father, I just want my people, all of them, with all of their differences, I want them to be one, perfectly one, just like you and I are one. And this was so important to Jesus that he was willing to go to the cross to die to make it happen. And I, I was reading, um, there's a guy named uh, Rodney Stark, a historian, all right? He wrote a book um, called The Rise of Christianity. And one of the questions that he was asking historically as he looked at the early church is he was just like, how in the world did the church grow so fast? And through his, his research and his study, um, basically he, he said, hey, Rome created these metropolis cities, these huge cities, and it never existed before then. And all of a sudden, in those cities in Rome, you had like powerful people next to peasant people. You had free men and slaves. You had rich and poor. You had black people and white people and all types of different people. And he said, in that time, there was just warfare. Like people hated each other because they were, usually they were off on their own farms like miles away from each other, but now they're crammed into a city living shoulder to shoulder and they were constantly at battle butting heads. And he said that the early church in the midst of this grew and blew up. Why? Because the church was the only place in the Rome where people of all types came together as one. And people would walk in to these churches in Rome and they would see white people and black people and Asian people and Hispanic people and Republicans and Democrats and all these other different types of people and they're gathered around the throne of Jesus and they're loving each other and providing each other and the average Roman would walk in and be like, this happens nowhere, surely God has to be here. And the church grew because the people would see these two groups of people who hated each other, there was no way that they would come together. But Jesus brought them near. And they're like, God is real. 
Because this type of unity brings glory to God and shows us the power and the beauty of the gospel. And it shows the power of the gospel to an unbelieving world that desperately needs Jesus. So how important is this? It's eternally important. Eternally important. So let me just ask you, how are you doing with this? Like, is there, is there a dividing wall of hostility in your life right now? What is it? Is it race? Is it gender? Is it financial? Is it political? Like, as you're thinking about that, think about, like, who are the people that you naturally feel like a kinship or a bond with? And who are the people that when you hear them say something about a political party or you hear them or you, they look a little bit different that you look at and you kind of think of as other. Like they're an outsider. They're, they're a foreigner. They're unlike me. They're probably unsafe. They might even be my enemy. Who are those people? Is there anyone that you're prejudiced against? Any group? Is there anyone you're not reconciled to and they would say that they are a Christian? Guys, if we're Christians, we are a reconciled people. And we can be reconciled together as Christians around Christ. And I would just beg you, I would beg you to seek reconciliation. And even if that person doesn't reciprocate, don't have a funeral in your heart where they're dead to you. Ask God to help you. Ask him to help you. And then finally, the second question is this. How do we accomplish it? All right, you're like, okay. I see the glory of God is at stake. Jesus prayed for it. It seems really important. All right, just tell me how to do it. Look what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn ahead to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul actually tells us says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So how do we, how do we accomplish this, Doxa? We don't. We actually can't. And if you look around our world, guys, you can easily see this. There are no politicians, there are no policies, there are no protests that will bring about unity of people groups, of diverse people groups. It's only Jesus. And Paul says God has already accomplished this by making a new people, making new people in Christ. And that's why Paul says, if you look back to Ephesians 4.3, it's not our job to create it, but what is our job? To maintain it. To maintain this unity that we're called to maintain the thing that Jesus accomplished. And Paul says, the way that we maintain unity in the body of believers, he says it's with humility. Look back. Gentleness, patience, it's bearing with, it's forbearance in love. And as I was thinking about this over the last couple weeks, guys, this sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians, Right? And so the way that we maintain this unity, the way that unity will exist in the church and God will be glorified and people will be loved and joy will be full is by walking in the Spirit of God. That if we would do the work of a, or a Hebrews chapter 12, 
and we would just throw off all the sin in our lives, where we would lay down our pride, our entitlement, our anger, our hurt, our prejudices, our walls of hostility. We would throw off all of that stuff that gets in the way, and we would do the work of Hebrews 12, of fixing our eyes on Jesus. That when we would fix our eyes on Jesus and we're walking with Jesus, filled with the Spirit of Jesus, it's then that God's people in God's church will be able to live as though Jesus intended it to. It's not within us apart from Jesus. We need the Spirit of Jesus to guide us, to empower us, to help us to live like this. Guys, we are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. And we are reconciled to one another by the blood of Jesus. It's all about the blood. And if we look back to chapter 2, verses 15, 17, 18, and 22, Jesus has made us a new family. Jesus has brought us peace. Jesus gave us access to God. Jesus is building together us into a dwelling place for God. Guys, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his blood. What's been accomplished must be applied. And the big question is, will we be these types of people? Will we be this type of church? Or are we going to be content which is kind of showing up and playing church, which is very different than what Jesus talked about following him. I don't know about you, I'm in. I want to go to work through the power of God in my life to maintain unity for the glory of God and the good of the world. And that's where this church is going, and this is who this church is. So let's just ask God to help us. Let's ask God to help us to be this type of church that Jesus died and rose to establish. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for your word. Jesus, I, I thank you for bringing about just reconciliation with the Father. That you, through your grace, um, overcame the sin in my life and you literally made me new and brought me into a living hope with eternity insight and I just say thank you and God I pray that what you've inspired Paul to write in Ephesians chapter 2 would be something that would be just very true of our church family that we would understand and celebrate the vertical dimension of the gospel where Jesus you have made us right with the Father but it wouldn't just stop there that we would realize that that vertical has horizontal implications and that you would cause us to love like Jesus and live like Jesus towards the people around us who are very radically different, but you love just as much as you love us. Would you let us be just a beacon of hope in a very racially tense time, in a very diverse and like tense city? Help us for your glory and the good of people meeting Jesus. Would love just pervade this place? Help us to be like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.